Hi, this is Mary Swander. Welcome back to Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. How did I come to live among the Amish? This is the question that most people ask me. In 1983, I had an illness that the only way to treat it was to eat organic food. And in 1983, there wasn't a whole lot of organic food to be had. There was a co-op in the town where I lived, but you might be able to find organic peanut butter or organic rice in the co-op, but basically the vegetables that were in the co-op came off the same truck as the commercial vegetables in the regular grocery store. And I knew that they had been treated with chemicals and wrapped in plastic and all of those good things that you don't want with organic produce. So I began to get in my car and drive down to the Amish settlement, scouting for food, thinking that maybe the Amish would have um, vegetables in their gardens that they hadn't treated with chemicals and I needed chickens and ducks and turkeys. And so I basically just started tooling around and knocking on doors. And soon I had a whole group of Amish. I'd go from one farm to the next to the next. One would sell me asparagus, one would uh, sell me turkeys and butcher them for me. And the next one would sell me squash and it kind of went on like that. And the Amish, as you know, don't have telephones, so I would get these little white postal cards, you know, the kinds that have the stamp already affixed to them in the mail, and it would say, Mary, asparagus ready, which I knew, you know, it took one whole day to get the uh, postcard to me, so I, at that time I would just jump in my car and race down to the Amish community and pick up my produce. They taught me, they gradually began to teach me how to garden myself and what kinds of things um, to use. I began to use um, seaweed for fertilizer, compost tea, all sorts of interesting organic techniques that are now very much in vogue, but at the time, nobody was really practicing them except the old hippies out of Organic Gardening magazine. So. One day on one of these trips, I saw a for sale sign in front of the Amish schoolhouse. And I thought, wouldn't that be fun for somebody? They could fix that up and live in it. And that somebody became me. And I started my own garden in the middle of nowhere, as most of my friends say. And I began to raise my own uh, ducks and turkeys and became friends with my neighbors. So here's an excerpt from my book, Out of This World, that details much of this experience. To welcome in the new year, I stood in my kitchen browning ground bare, the little chunks of red meat dancing and sizzling in my cast iron pan, the aroma wafting through my house. As I cooked, I sang and yodeled to the radio. Emmy Lou Harris, 
creating a steady, cheerful beat for the stirrings of my wooden spoon. On the kitchen counter waited piles of vegetables from my cash pit. Carrots, potatoes, turnips, and onions, scrubbed, sliced, and diced, all ready to be added to the pot, then placed atop my wood-burning stove to simmer and steam for several hours, blend and ooze into a delicious winter stew. Moses and his wife, Miriam, had given me my first package of bear, part of a kill their grandson had brought back from a hunting trip in Colorado. They gave the other neighbors homemade glazed donuts done up in saran wrap and bright red bows, but were stumped for a while over my gift. They knew I had a medical condition that not only had eliminated sugar from my diet, but has made me intolerant of most normal American fare and sent me off on a journey of experimentation with less common, more exotic foods. Here. You want to try this? Miriam asked one night in late December, pulling the package from her propane freezer. The light from the kerosene lamp casting a shadow across her face. The package, white and glistening in its butcher paper, weighed and chilled my hand. I thanked her and walked up the gravel road toward my house with my gift, the solstice stars bright in the clear sky. Ursa Major, the big bear constellation, radiant above me. Bear. I'm going home to try to eat bear, I thought. What would it taste like? Greasy and gamey? No, that stereotype had long vanished from my culinary vocabulary. Since the onset of my illness, I have eaten venison, moose, wild duck and goose, pheasant, even possum and squirrel. Greasy and gamey, my friends had predicted before each attempt. After having given each meat an honest try, though, and the meat in return providing needed protein for me during a time of crisis, I began my own list of descriptions, ranging from delicate to nutty to succulent. My first bite of bear brought a lift to my eyebrows. Bear was nothing like any of the other critters on my safe foods list. Bear was spicy. Plain ground bear shaped into a patty, broiled in the oven without salt, pepper, herbs, or sauce, was the tastiest meat I'd ever put into my mouth. The bear hummed on my plate, its hearty bouquet filling my nostrils and lungs, resting on my tongue with pure pleasure. With my eyes closed, bear was barbecue. Bear was bratwurst. Bear had a bite, a growl, a scratching, clawing taste that stayed behind to make me feel satisfied, fortified, whole. Oh, Artemis. Oh, Callisto. Oh, Goldilocks, I cried to myself. Embrace the great beast of the night. You are in heaven. So where'd the Amish get this bear meat anyway? My Amish neighbor's grandson and a whole load of other young bachelor Amish teenagers 
hired a driver and they all piled into a van and the driver drove them out to Colorado. And there they would stay for some time and they would find a rancher and do a trade. First they would go hunting for bear and they would get their kill and then in exchange for the hunting privileges, they would build the farmer a barn. And with eight to 10 Amish teenage boys, that barn went up in a hurry. And of course they had the skills to do that. And then they would drive home with the frozen bear meat and distribute it um, to their family. But it turned out that there weren't very many people in their family that liked bear meat. And so I became part of the family. Now, Marty, who was um, the grandson, and he was quite he was quite a hunter, and he hunted coon as well as bear, and he had more equipment for this hobby than anybody had ever seen. He he had the rifles, he had the dogs. He had one dog after another that was, uh, you know, uh, hound dogs that were better and better at treeing those coons. And Marty would polish those guns and work with them all day, and he would train those dogs and work with them all night. And then they would go out in the middle of the night to tree that coon and hunt those coons. And this, you know, this went on and on and on. And I don't know, Marty, I didn't, Marty didn't have, get any sleep as far as I could see. Now, at that same time, I had this mutt dog named Bill. And <laughs> Bill was a combination of uh, spaniel, terrier, I called him a span tear, who knows what. And he was just a very, very lovable dog, and he just he, he would jump into everybody's lap and lick them up, except when we were out for a walk, and I'd take him on a walk down by the creek in the middle of the day, mind you, and he slam, bam, would find a coon, and that was the end of them with one shake of the neck, boom. And so... I went back and told Marty, I don't know, Marty, got me a coon this morning, broad daylight. I didn't need but one little mutt dog, no gun, no rifle or anything like that, you know. And then walking home, I realized that hunting for these teenage Amish boys was basically sex. It was sex. Because Marty, soon after that, Marty started um, dating the woman who would become his wife. And suddenly, the guns were put away, the dogs were gone, and Marty wasn't getting much sleep. But it wasn't because he was out hunting coon.
Here's a little tune for you that I'll play on my banjo. It's called Cumberland Mountain Bear Chase. So here in Free Martintown, you can take many things to slaughter. You can take sheep, you can take hogs, you can take cattle. But we have an upcoming story that our roving reporter, Marco Caccio, secured from a local farmer named Carlos Williams. And he takes a very interesting thing to slaughter when he was only nine years old. Lightning bugs. Oh, okay. Straight up, uh, and you're getting the money from some type of a, uh, some type of a college thing for uh, Iowa State. Okay. We're in Atkins, Iowa, man, at a, at a uh, softball tournament. How old were you? 11, nine. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, th I think about nine, maybe, you know. I could count change and order my own hot dog and shit, right? And my mom was playing softball and shit. I had my big brother with me, so I think he's probably about 11. And they're like, catch the lightning bugs. Man, we caught so many damn lightning bugs, man. We had just great big giant jugs, man. And they would glow, and, like, the people were like... There the kids are in the middle of the cornfield. You can see us because we had containers like that, full of lightning bugs. Like a clear container. Yeah. <laughs> so they could see you in the field. Man, exactly. It was funny. And and we had everybody's kids were out there with us. You know, so none of the parents, you know, said anything. My, they're, they're, like my mom's fucking playing softball. They're like, where's all the kids going? Like Pied Piper and <laughs> Right, and like they were playing with the little black kids right there, right? You know, oh, once Emma's little boy, and they're like, oh, it's okay then, right? Because <laughs> they know Emma ran a tight shift, right? Mm -hmm. And she told me we could do that shit, right? And she was like, just don't go away back in the cornfield. But then I'm following my brother, you know, and then I'm also testing my manhood. Like it's dark, it's scary as hell, but look, I got all this light. You know, because it's going out for the cornfield. We did get kind of lost like that. got kind of scared, you know. Then you got to man up, and it's like direction. Yeah. And then you got to look up to see where all the light light is. Because you get out there about maybe 
five blocks and you start lo losing where the ball game was being played at, dog. You got to follow signs and oh, the crowd, someone hit a, someone hit a home run over that way. <laughs> so you just start running in the cornfield that way and shit. All you see is fucking leaves and lightning bugs, man. <laughs> and then you have to like, like you're in the jungle because the fucking corn is fucking, what, 13, 14 foot tall. And we're, we're, we're little guys down there trying to look through the corn. And yeah, that, that took one out. That took a memory. <laughs> Damn. Atkins, Iowa. Atkins, yeah. Iowa. And we left all the fucking, uh, we collected for the students. And Emma went back and got that money for us. So it was really cool. You were catching lightning bugs. So they could use so the that, lithium. Oh. So the, they can use the lithium. This is Iowa State. At that time, yep. we're, we're using them. Okay. To see why nothing fucked with them. Mm. So they gr grind that little light it up and they put some other shit in it you know and they got their own chemical whatever they call it you know what i mean their own formula and it's called dipel and it's an organic herbicide make life great again here's an ad from plain interest volume number four in the back here and it uh, kind of relates to me and my medical condition it says make life great again our daughter was gluten dairy sugar intolerant for years this supplement is the only thing that helped her excellent for diarrhea yeast rashes acid reflux irregular heartbeat digestive issues and there you go, that'll fix you right up. I should have just gone to plain interest the very beginning. That would have been cured. So, living among the Amish and uh, growing my own food was a real life experience and a learning experience. And when you start out growing food, you're really interested in the plants and the way they come up out of the soil, and you're interested in the animals and the plants that they eat. And your focus is on, you know, the wonderful sizes and shapes and colors of the vegetables and the personalities and the habits of your animals. But what you gradually learn is that everything that you eat, everything that you grow depends on the soil. And if you don't have good soil, you're not gonna have good vegetables and you're not going to have good health. And that's the discovery of Sir Albert Howard, um, uh, a British scientist who tried to figure out why people were healthy. And he eventually went to India thinking that he was going to teach them how to farm and in turn they taught him what healthy soil was and what healthy plants were. And one of the things that makes uh, 
healthy plants is what I mentioned before, compost tea. And compost tea is a kind of natural fertilizer that you spray on the plants. And the way I was taught to make compost tea is just take a handful of compost that you make yourself, which is um, decomposing weeds and plant material. Um, and you put it in a bucket of water. And then I take a little aquarium pump to uh, make some bubbly action in the, in the five gallon bucket and do that for several days and there you've got your tea. But reading plain interests here, I see that um, I'm, I've been missing something. I've been missing a lot of somethings because I'm getting a recipe here for, uh, for compost tea that's way more complicated than what I've been doing and probably a lot better. Um, it says that it stimulates the plant's immunity and it repels insects. So you see, with compost tea, you don't need um, insecticides and chemicals. And so here's, here's what we're talking about, a 10-gallon container, not five, but 10. And in this 10-gallon container, you put one-gallon finished compost. Okay, good so far. Then you add one quart sorghum or sugar, one quart raw milk, one cup Epsom salts, one pint kelp, four ounces apple cider vinegar, two ounces pure neem oil, two gallon pail of alfalfa packed, five garlic bulbs or plants chopped, several handfuls of thyme and several handfuls of comfrey. And then you let it ferment for five or 10 days. You stir it frequently and then you spray it on your plants. Um, one pint of this concoction to a quart and five gallons of water. There's our noon whistle, everyone. I hope you're going home for lunch in Free Martin Town. Wow, wow, we're still one of those towns that has a noon whistle. How about that? All right. So looking through um, play and interest, I see that there's a lot of talk in this issue about soil. And when I first moved into my schoolhouse, it was just an old schoolyard. You know, there's a little house that's 650 square feet and then a blank schoolyard. There wasn't a tree or a bush or a shrub or a plant on it. And one of the first things that I did there, before I fixed up the house, I planted a garden and I walked around the space trying to find the perfect site for my garden. I remember I worked on this for several days because you want a site that's in full sun. You want a site that's, you know, not too far away from the house so that you, you know, you forget about the weeds that are growing out there. I wanted to be able to see it out my kitchen window and I'm like, oh my 
goodness, look at those weeds coming off. I gotta get out there and, and take care of that. So I didn't want it out of sight, out of mind. And then I wanted um, good drainage. And good drainage uh, means that you don't want it too wet. You don't want it too dry. You, you want the excess moisture to roll off, but you don't want it to take the soil with it. So here's an article about well-drained soil is the secret to gardening success. This is by Richard Fahey in Plain Interest. And um, he says that poorly drained soil has some alluring characteristics for the beginning gardener or fruit grower. Um, and this is so true. In the wet spring, it leads you to think that, oh, this moisture is really good. But those wet parts that are percolating up just mean that underneath, underneath those wet spots that you think are so wonderful because you won't have to irrigate or water, why are they wet? Because under them, you have bad soil. And you might have really, you know, clay, bad clay soil under there or something like that. And then, and then in this article, he also talks about you walk out and you say, oh, look at here. Uh, what a nice sunny spot. There's no trees here. There's no bush to clear. This is ideal. And that, you know. That was part of my thinking when I was hunt walking around. I was like, well, but there weren't there weren't any trees or bush anywhere, so I didn't have any clue of what to do in that case. But he asks, then you have to say to yourself, but why is this site open? Well, nearby the trees have taken over. And he said, just think about that. It's bound to be because the soil in that site is poorly drained. Okay, poorly drained soil is going to get you in trouble every time. And he, Richard Fahey here, he says it's better to just clear some trees where there are thickets and you know that plants will thrive and rather than pick that open site in the middle of the field that is an indication of poorly drained soil. He says poorly drained soil will not only puddle after a rain, but it will also go squish, squish, squish. And that's it today, folks, for this episode from Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land. We've been recording from our studios in sunny downtown Free Martintown, and we've had technical and musical assistance today from Marco Caccio. We've had support from the Werner Ellathorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and we would welcome your support clicking that red button on our website, agarts.org, 
Like us on Facebook at AgArts and follow us on Instagram at AgArtsUSA.